Sure. Sometimes it's up or down. In this case, yeah. it's the right hour. Okay. Terrific. Okay. Super. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, good evening. On behalf of the uh, Committee on Public Lectures, I would like to welcome everyone to tonight's uh, Stafford Little Lecture. Uh, this was initially known as the Stafford Little Lectureship on Public Affairs, and this series was endowed in 1899 with a gift of $10,000 by Henry Stafford Little of the class of 1844. Grover Cleveland, ex-president of the United States, was the first Stafford Little lecturer until his death in 1908. Other lecturers in this series have included President Theodore Roosevelt, Albert Einstein, Arnold Schoenberg, and several architects, uh, including uh, Daniel Libeskind, Michael Graves, and Frank Geary. Uh, tonight's lecturer will be introduced by uh, Mario Gandelsonas, Professor of Architectural Design at the School of Architecture and also head of the design firm Agrest and Gandelsonas in New York City. Mario. Good evening. Um, I have the uh, Pleasure to introduce this evening a great architect and a good friend, uh, Cesar Pelli. Um, I, we met a long time ago. I don't want to quantify that, but uh, it was sometimes in the 70s, uh, just before uh, Cesar moved to the East Coast. And then uh, I would say through the 70s and 80s, I had the pleasure to uh, see Cesar uh, in New York, but also in, at Yale, where he was the dean for a number of years, the classic seven, I think. Um, uh, while uh, Cesar Pelli has designed buildings of every kind, one of them here in our campus, the wonderful Denuncio swimming pool, the best swimming pool in the campus, I must say. Uh, he has achieved with his practice something unique, to be associated to a building type that is synonymous with the modern city, the skyscraper. Pelif buildings inhabit cities all over the world. In New York, where he designed the Museum of Modern Art extension and tower, the World Financial Center, uh, in downtown Manhattan, buildings in London, in Buenos Aires, Hong Kong, and the famous Petrona Towers in Kuala Lumpur uh, that until recently were the tallest building in the world. Now there is a very ugly building in Taiwan that holds that title. Um, in his work, Pelli has mastered the essence of the high-rise buildings. And I'm specifically referring to, to, to this type because, in a way, it's become almost synonymous uh, with uh, Caesar's uh, architecture, um, at least in, from my perspective. And uh, he has focused his creativity not just in the obvious design of the massing, but particularly on the skin, on the surface of his buildings, which have become, with time, more and more complex and refined. 
His mastery has led him to the ultimate achievement for an architect, to design structures that embody the identity of a city, the best example of this being precisely the Petrona Towers in Kuala Lumpur. <clears throat> Perhaps it's their iconic power that might explain the reason for this building to belong to both high and popular culture, which is rare in architecture. For we could say that in the movie Entrapment, the Petrona Towers are not just a stage, but also a star, an integral part of the cast together with Sean Connery and Catherine Zeta-Jones, and this is not small achievement. See, <laughs> sir. Thank you, Mario. That was a very generous introduction. But I need to make a clarification before I start. I was introduced this as a lecturer. Uh, this is really not going to be a lecture. A lecture implies some imparting or sharing some wisdom, and, uh, and I don't have any wisdom to share with you. I'll just be showing you some projects I have designed, and I will make some comments about why we did the things we did. Uh, as architects, we do things based on some intelligence and knowledge, but we also search, and like all searches, we search a little blindly, and then we check afterwards to see how good it was what we did and why it was good or why it was bad. So I will be just telling you a little about that. But I need to probably just at the beginning explain, this is something that I would not have needed to explain in the past, but today is necessary, that I strongly believe that each project is a unique condition that requires a unique response. A uniqueness of site, climate, neighbors, program, budgets, users, aspirations, the history of the place. And therefore, if one works in a large geographic area, as most architects do, in a wide variety of building types, I cannot be true to what I believe and at the same time have a coherent, recognizable personal style. So I have avoided personal style. Occasionally, buildings may show similarities with others because they share most conditions. But by and large, the buildings I design are quite different from each other. I believe that the buildings don't belong to me, the architect, although they may look strange one after another in a monograph. They belong to the place where they are built. And perhaps I will start now. Indeed, as Mario said, we have been very fortunate in having had several tall buildings to design, and the typology of the tall building has interested me a great deal, and I'll show you a few. This is a building recently finished in San Francisco. It is in the wrong side of the tracks. That is, this is southeast of Market Street on Mission Street. It is the head, San Francisco headquarters of Chase Morgan Bank. 
And this building really grew from my great admiration of the Halliday Building, built at the very beginnings of the 20th century, uh, ahead of most other glass buildings in Europe. Quite, this is the terrible slide I took, but that's the best thing I have. The, um, which is both rational and at the same time with a strong emotional content and, and the building is very strongly composed. Some of those qualities guided us in the design of the exterior wall of the Chase, Chase uh, Morgan building with a very generous colonnade on the street and it built very well in San Francisco. And we have also designed buildings in other places. This is a very tall tower, 420 meters, about 100 floors, although they claim it's 88 because 88 is a double lucky number for Chinese uh, in Hong Kong. And this came, it's a very simple pylon, a, a most basic form. And this, which also looks fantastic at night, is considerably taller than all other buildings in Hong Kong because it came from a decision of the city planning in Hong Kong that they wanted to mark the narrowest point of the strait in Victoria Harbor. One tower in Hong Kong Island, which is the one to the right, we superimposed our design on their, on their drawing, and another tower at the left in Kowloon. Both towers be the same height, 420 meters, and they would be these two great sentinels. So therefore, the, the particulars of the design were secondary to the more primary iconic quality of the towers, which we try to achieve. And a similar problem, this is New Jersey now. This is a building in Jersey City, right across from, as you can see, this photograph was taken from the Esplanade in Battery Park City. And the tower is almost finished. And it's also because it's, this tower fulfills a very similar function as the tower in Hong Kong, marking the edge of the water and marking a point where it balances buildings on the other side of the water. And the last tower I will show you, this is a tower that is going to be going up in Madrid, Paseo de la Castellana. Uh, this was a competition that we won. Very, very simple tower, also very iconic, a simple pylon of strong facets, and the, oops, the top uh, yeah, the top of the tower will have a, a, a garden. This is not a winter garden. We thought we could do a winter garden, but the Madrid code doesn't allow us. It has to be open to the air. Otherwise, they would count that as usable space, and the tower would have to be shorter. Now, what, what we have, although we keep on designing some tall buildings, and the building type keeps on 
interest in me a great deal. We have been involved mostly in other kinds of work. And I will show you some. This is a plan of Bilbao in Spain. Um, it's an interesting area. What has happened in Bilbao, I think, has innumerable lessons for many people. I will just superficially touch on some. This is Bilbao. The old city is that little piece there that was very much planned just like that in the year 1400. And this is how the city grew in the late 19th century, early 20th century. The port of Bilbao, which was a major port, because Bilbao was a major industrial city, was here in a zone, zone called Abanduibar. This whole area is called Abando. So this is Abanduibar. And this is the river, the rear. But the port since then has been replaced with a huge container port at the mouth of the river on the Bay of Biscay, which left this piece of land available for other things. That is the same piece of land. That is the old medieval city. Actually, that was the old medieval city that grew. This was 1400. This is 1500 and about 1600, roughly, this whole area. This is called Seven Streets, Siete Calles. And this is the 19th century, 20th century Bilbao. El Ensanchen, the expansion, many Spanish cities had similar, similar things. And this was the area where they called for a competition in 1993 that we participated and won. And that area in 1993 looked like this, with warehouses, railroad yards, shipyards, and, of course, many highways. And with a big, when they built this port here, they made this whole area horizontal, ending up with a retaining wall in this line, about 20 to 25 foot high, so that this area was completely unavailable to the citizens of Bilbao since this area was built. Bilbao otherwise has a very handsome, regular grid with occasional small plazas. This is the center plaza, this is the main street, and this is the center plaza, La Plaza Elliptica. And this is a view of the same zone when we started working in 1993. This is the area where we already knew that the Guggenheim Museum was going to be built here. And we actually had the plans that Frank Gehry's office sent to us. So we could incorporate it in our model. This was before it was built. And we planned an extension of the city streets on the same basic grid. This park, Parque de Doña Casilda, which was triangular, we proposed making it now larger and rectangular. And one linear park alongside the river with residential buildings in this area, offices around the plaza, and one major office building, and buildings of function still not yet determined. This is all following the program that we were given by the people of Bilbao. And they were calling for an emblematic building, and we proposed a tall tower in this area. 
Since then, the Guggenheim has been built. And just make a comment on the Guggenheim. These are the photographs one usually sees. And if you see a person there, it is really a monumental form. Extraordinarily beautiful as seen from the river. I think it's a very, very successful building. And I think Frank worked very hard at it. Because what is most interesting is that from the city side, it's quite a modest structure. All of Bilbao is around 10 to 12 stories in height, quite uniform. But this, the Guggenheim is only about three stories high on the street. So as you drive by, you are not aware it's there until you almost you are on top of it. The most noticeable element there is the puppy of Jeff Koons. That, much, that catches your eye before you see the Guggenheim Museum. So I thought Frank did just a superb job with the, with the Guggenheim. Also, the Palace of Congresses and Opera, Palace Euskalduna, was finished, functioning. That was also another competition won by a Spanish architect, Soriano. And new, this is just around the corner from where we are. This is a pedestrian bridge by Santiago Calatrava quite a beautiful bridge. He also designed the airport. And the subway system designed by Norman Foster. So that this is not just the Guggenheim, there has been a continuous desire to improve the city. Subway system has made a huge, huge difference in how Bilbao works. It was not there in 93, it was finished about five years later, and it has just made life in Bilbao incredibly easier and more pleasant. Oops. So we were asked to redo the plan in 1998. And we had proposed thin apartment towers. We were asked to eliminate those towers to do all low-scale buildings with interior courtyards. I thought this was not nearly as good a place to live, but that's what the people in Bilbao wanted. So the tower became much shorter with larger floor plates. These two buildings became identified now. This one would be a library for the University of Deusto, which is the Jesuit University across the river. And the other one would be the administration for the University of the Basque people. Uh, and these were all residential, residential offices and an office tower and the hotel, we had proposed it in this corner, and the, with marketing people, I told them that it would be better if it was next to the Palace of Congresses. So we made all of these changes, then we drew very large set of plans called a PERI, which becomes law. This was the go through the legislature, they vote on it, and it becomes law. This is not just a master plan that is implemented, but becomes a law of the place. Every detail we call for. And that's another. Since then, a number of architects have worked. The hotel has been designed by Ricardo Legorreta, almost finished. This other building is designed by a Basque architect, Peña Ganchegui and the shopping center design and well under construction design by Robert Stern. They, those are the only buildings that could be built because the railroad 
the, the, the railroad line is cutting across this way. The, see, also, Rafael Moneo is designing the library, and Alvaro Sisa will be designing the building for the University of the Basque people, and Rob Creer has been engaged to design one of these buildings, and we are designing the tower. The tower is an interesting problem in that case. How do you fit the tower? As you can see, the, this is a very uniform scale, and this building maintains the same scale. This is an exception in form, but not very much in height, and certainly not, as I said, against the street. This is a very recent photograph showing you the hotel by Legoretta, the apartment house, and the shopping center by Bobstone, and this park, which is almost finished. And a view from the other side. And what is interesting, this is a master plan, not a design. So when I visit there, I see all of these things finished, but they are not my design. And uh, you know, I didn't design any of those things. I would not have done those light fixtures. But I think the architect who did that, a, ch a chap called Lopez Choyet, did a fantastic job. It's a very pleasant place to be in. I have to. And after you get beyond this ego thing of feeling this is not yours, it's really quite a wonderful feeling to be there, this peculiar collaboration into which we design the alignments of all of these elements. Somebody else does the final design, and still somehow it's, it's his and it's also mine. And the, the, this idea of planning as a form of artistic collaboration, I find it actually very, very exciting. Uh, intensely used, it's right on the river, and the largest open space in Bilbao, with very generous, as you can see, innumerable amount of benches, many sculptures, very, very well done. Just very, very well used, intensely used. It's a pleasure to go there and see it. This is one of the sculptures. This is anecdotic, but these pieces of sculpture, those are about 15 foot high, they are, the sculpture is trying to make very large scale two cuicos, and the cuicos are wooden milking pails that the Basque people have used for centuries with very traditional form. And this is a hotel by Legoreta. This photograph is almost a year old. And that's the tower is on the axis of the diagonal El Cano. And very important axis because this is the main plaza. And it terminates a key view, like you will see there. And it presents now a very sharp edge on the end of the view and allows the two flat sides to look up and down the river. This is another view from that very same plaza. This is El Sagrado Corazón. And in many of Bilbao's streets, key streets, you will see a terminal point that terminates the view, encloses it, defines it. And right now, when you look down El Cano, you see this rather, oops, 
not very handsome apartment buildings across the river. So soon, I hope, it will look like that. And that the design of the tower, it's a very, very simple form, tapering towards the top. And the tapering accomplishes two things, makes it feel much more delicate. And also, although the tower is 140 meters tall, but virtually all of those points converge at exactly 1,000 meters up in the air, so that the tower is it's, it's in reality 140 meters high, virtually is a one kilometer high. Now, I'll show you a couple other buildings that we've been working on. This is Dayton, Ohio. Uh, Dayton, Ohio, it's a city that has a great industrial past, but the center of Dayton has been very much abandoned, as you can see, buildings have been torn down and become parking lots, still wealthy in the, in the surrounding communities. And some city fathers and mothers got very concerned about this. They bought this property, which was a department store that had been abandoned, and we were asked to design a performing arts center. And we did it with these ideas in mind. Instead of putting the theater lengthwise so that we would have room for a great lobby, we put it the wrong way on the narrow side, but this allows direct entrances from a parking garage across the street and direct entrances from all streets, and it allows that the space for the lobby function independently from the theater so that it can act as a public place of refuge during the day with a large cafe in this corner. So that this has been built. And this is a secondary issue, but of interest to me. I have always been interested in recovering the vertical space of a theater house so that the, there is drama in just entering the house before the performance starts. And here we were able to achieve it after innumerable negotiations with, us, with our acousticians. And it's quite wonderful. That's how the model took shape. And what, one way that we were able to achieve it, because this is all acoustically transparent, so that the form doesn't affect the acoustics. The acoustics are balanced outside of that form. And that's the space on the street with the Winter Garden, um, intensely used by people at all times of the day, at, also at night. And that's the theater inside. And that's the great verticalities I wanted to achieve which has been achieved, and it makes it truly an extraordinarily dramatic space. One interesting problem up here, very secondary but fun, is what do you do at the end of that cone? So what we placed at the end are fiber optics, about over 2,000 points, five different intensities, re reflecting stars, five different magnitudes, and what you see are the constellations that were over the sky 
of Dayton on December 17, 1903, the day that the Wright brothers flew for the first time. And in, in Dayton, this is really corny, but in Dayton, this has a great resonance. And, and when occasionally, I don't mind doing things like this that are very obvious if they mean something to the people that will enjoy them. Now that is the town of Duluth, Minnesota, way up there, where there is a campus of the University of Minnesota, and they asked us to design a tiny concert hall, really tiny, 350 seats. This is a courtyard where music is here, theater is here, the museum is here, or the court, which is about a floor higher than the surrounding areas. This is a tiny, tiny budget also. And that's how it will fit in the space and how we hope the space would look. And they also needed to accommodate a 76-piece orchestra that they have in campus so that at the, at the orchestra oops, level, about half of the space is stage, half of the space is seats. And we built many of these models to check acoustics and form, and that's how it is built. Uh, it's a very economical structure. The surface are copper shingles nailed on plywood, just like if they were asphalt tiles. Um, very economical and quite lovely, and already changing color. And there is a skylight that splits the form in the middle so that they are really like two clamshells, slightly open, leaving a, just a gentle space. It's a very narrow skylight, two foot wide, but it gives an enormous amount of light inside. If you enter there during the day and the only light is coming through the slide, you, you could read a newspaper with just that light. It's quite wonderful. And the, the light of the skylight moves across the walls as the sun moves. And at night, you can tell at a great distance if there is a performance because you will see that glowing light in between the two halves. This is Miami, and this is downtown Miami here. And so about eight blocks north of downtown, we had those two sites across Biscayne Boulevard, which is this red line. That's also Route 1. And to design in one to the west an opera house and to the right a concert hall. That was also a competition. And this is the form we proposed. Concert hall sort of moving around Biscayne Boulevard onto each other, like dancing with each other, and one opening to the south and one to the north with entrances on all sides. Because one of the problems with these building types is that the backs of these building types are quite hideous, and the fronts is where all the action is. So instead of defining a good side and a bad side, we place the buildings balanced so that there will be all sides will be good sides. That's the plan, the opera house with two 
side stage and a backstage and a large secondary theater and a large rehearsal hall, which was also doubled up as theater. And the tracks are all nicely tucked away and the concert hall. And in every case, you enter from all sides. And these two lobbies are exactly lined up on the same line across this plaza that straddles Biscayne Boulevard. And we hoped it will look something like this. Probably it will not because the budget for the plaza has kept on cutting down, but it will, look, it will come close. That's the way the buildings will mass so that us, these are buildings that require very large ground floors, smallish second floors, and then they get quite small towards the top. So we did the form so that they appear to receive cascade and be rather solid forms in the Miami skyline. That's the view of the site. That's a tower that we have, this is not working, but a tower that you see there was an old Sears Rebock Tower that we were asked to preserve, told to preserve, and incorporated our design. And the parking lot to the left is where the concert hall will go. And that's how it is today quite advanced in construction. That, that, oops, there you can see. Uh, how do I get rid of that? <laughs> can somebody help me how to get rid of this thing? So, thank you. The, uh, the, the Opera House, of course, is a larger building than the concert hall but they both will balance well, and that's the Sears Tower that we were asked to preserve, and shortly it will look like that. Now, this Madison, Wisconsin, uh, it's a smallish town, about 250,000 people, with the government was Wisconsin there, and the University of Wisconsin also here. And we are designing what is that white model there, a rather complex set of theaters and a museum. In a keep, that street that cuts through the middle, State Street is a pedestrian street. There are about six long blocks between the capital and the campus or the university. And it's a pedestrian street and this building is on it. And we were also asked to preserve some buildings there. That's the Capitol, designed by George Post, quite a handsome, very imposing structure, quite beautiful in the city. And we were asked to preserve that facade at the left, which was the facade of an old department store, the Jost Kesenich store, and this entrance to an old movie house, the Capitol Theater, to the right. And also we were asked to preserve the interior of this theater and the space for this playhouse, right where they were, and to a new large hall, overture hall here. This was the existing facade, the existing facade of the Capitol Theater. So that it was quite full of encumbrances. And this is the design we came up with behind this all store facade, we placed a skylight with 
a rotunda that made sense of the gesture that the department store had towards the street, although the department store never quite fulfilled the promise of the entrance. I'm doing something wrong here. And it would look like that, with very tall, very tall vertical space, which is now almost finished and is looking quite wonderful. That's the space. It's all French limestone and sycamore wood, which is a very light yellowish wood, which you have in all of the ceilings. And that's the main space of the overture hall with quite a wonderful metal ceiling undulating and with undulating lights and finished with an automotive finish, actually, that we borrowed from Motoguzi. Just a gorgeous, pearly color. And this will be the Madison Museum of Contemporary Art on the other corner. You can just see the preserved Capitol Tower. We are near, when we finish the first phase, then we'll start construction in the second phase, because then they will have a new theater. We can work on the old theater. Uh, that's in California, Orange County, the city of Costa Mesa. It's an interesting city. Oh, up until about 40 years ago, there was nothing but lima bean fields there. Then a shopping center was built there, which is extremely successful, one of the two or three more successful shopping centers in the country. And near the shopping center, a town center grew up. We did some years ago that tower for IBM, stainless steel, small tower. Then we were asked to add this piece of a theater, repertory theater, and to redo the facade of the repertory theater, which we did. And since then, we have also been asked to design this concert hall. And they like us so much now, we are designing a Mandarin hotel in that area. So that the concert hall just started construction, but the repertory theater is finished. That's the new repertory theater. That's a photograph from the, my hotel room. And that's how it looks in the entrance. Half of this was the old building, half of this was the new building. This was done in a sort of, originally in a sort of Spanish colonial style, and the interior of the theater. This is a, a, this is a great, great company, not our design, but the, the, the repertory theater there is always ranked one of the best in the country. And this is the concert hall, and which is a traditional shoebox shape, very, very tight side. It's about a third of the area of Disney Hall, say. And it's shoebox, but with major innovation, which is all of these spaces around it are reverberation chambers, which can be adjusted to play with the interior space or not, and they can change the reverberation from roughly one and a half seconds, which is a very dry sound, to about four and a half seconds, which is almost as long a reverberation as you'll find in a Gothic cathedral. And that's the front of the theater, uh, undulating glass facing north, 
so that we can have a great deal of glass. And because it is Southern California, doesn't even need to be insulated glass. It's a single thickness of iron-free glass. It means it's completely clear, water-clear glass. And the walls are, again, just glass and limestone. And this is all very, very tight. So what we have done is just play with the volumes or a bit, we like to say, like a Ben Nicholson. You probably don't know who Ben Nicholson was, but was a great English sculptor in mid-20th century. And this is what the interior will look like. Now, this is another place. This, this man is Lionel Hampton, a great jazz musician. And for some reason, he became very deeply associated with, the, with Moscow, Idaho, the University of Idaho. He went there for some 28 years regularly to the jazz festival. And now this is the campus of the University of Idaho in Moscow, Idaho. And that's the administration building. This is the Lionel Hampton School of Music. And we are designing a jazz concert hall. This is a building dedicated purely, primarily to jazz. It can be used for other things, but it's been designed for jazz, which is, in all of our research, to be the first freestanding building ever designed just to play jazz, which is, I've been listening to jazz steadily now for almost a year, which is quite fun. And that's the building. There is also a drop of about 40 feet from this more academic street to this other end. So this would be a new facade to the university with a great staircase. We started calling it Scholar Regia because we are architects, but our clients preferred to call it Just Alley, and I think they were right. So this would be Just Alley. And with the forms of the roof, we've been playing with ideas of rhythms, syncopations, and primarily the idea of rifts because drifts are unique to jazz. That is a motif that is repeated changing, which is and so that many of the design forms are, as I see them, are drifts. Probably I'll be the only one who will see this, but this is how the design is taken. See, that's the Scala Ranger, or the Jazz Alley, that goes down 40 feet. The Jazz Concert Hall, which is designed with a movable, tower that will allow to change almost in half the size of the space so that they could have a very intimate jazz cabaret or a very large performance. And a rehearsal hall and these other elements adding to the existing school of music and also jazz archives because Lionel Hampton left all of his papers and instruments to the University of Idaho, and since then, other jazz musicians have been leaving their papers to the University of Idaho, so that this is becoming a major repository of jazz information. And that's, but this is an early model. We are not quite yet finished with schematic design. The roof will be all galvanized, light galvanized metal, which looks a lot like a light pewter and on, some, on concrete walls. And this is really the character we would expect to have. 
Now, this is again Minnesota, but now this is much further south. This is Minneapolis. And in Minneapolis, we are designing a public library at the edge of downtown. Years ago, we designed this tower, which was a headquarters for Norwest, which now is Wells Fargo. And interesting sight, as we started analyzing it, we realized these are two major streets, Nicollet Mall, major pedestrian mall, major shopping, and Hennepin Avenue, which is mostly movie houses and art facilities in this area. And we realized that those two streets really represent the edges of two colliding grids. Obviously, these grids came up by pop settlements that were following the edge of the Mississippi River. But what was, that defines our site, the very edge of those colliding grids. So that guided us in our design. We needed to have a public access from both streets, and you cannot have two check-ins. The librarians were adamantly opposed to that. So you enter into a public room, and you check in in this point. This is public spaces. These are public, private functions of the university. One is aligned with the eastern grid. The other one is aligned with the western grid. That also defines this wedge-shaped interior space, which is, of course, the same angle as the wedge shape in the main streets. I should have pointed up that two blocks up from this corner is the is the, Nicollet, is the Nicollet Bridge, which was the first bridge over the Mississippi in this area, and still a very important entrance into town. And this is how the two wings took form, we also with a planetarium on the top floor, and this wing-like element floating over the space. Very straightforward, very efficient floor plate, regular grid of columns, mushroom columns, so that completely free in its functions. The only permanent things are those black elements which were required structurally. And I'm showing you the more unique floor, which is the second floor, which connects with skyways with the remainder of the city. And, and all of downtown Minneapolis is connected by skyways. The intention was how to do the most efficient, flexible space we are supplying air under the floor so that it's a very, very sustainable system. And that gives complete freedom in what, because libraries are at the point that nobody really knows what they are going to be 20, 30 years from now. Many of the functions of the library are being taken over by computers. And as portable computers become less and less expensive, many of the reasons that people have for going to libraries will disappear. So that libraries need to become something else, and there are many ideas about it, mostly community centers. But what we know is that there will be changes, so that we designed the building as flexible as we could with, a few, with as few limitations in architecture as we could. And that's how it will look as you come over the bridge with the planetarium, and you can start seeing because this was an earlier drawing, the strategy we used for the facades of the building, which were 
what we have are varying shapes of glass. And the gla it's all glass, but some of the glass is completely opaque, backed up by insulation and, and a solid wall. Some of the glass is completely transparent, and some of the glass is partially opaque with fritted glass. And the fritted glass, instead of just having dots, what we have is, in each one of the facade, these four Minnesota images. Birch trees, water in lakes, grassland, and snow. And those, we see these were the original photographs. We regularized them with a computer and made them into free patterns. And this is being fabricated now as we talk. And, and the pieces of glass vary from 18 inches to three feet to six feet, so that they are modular but randomly organized, so that what they create is horizontal arrangements. They don't line up vertical, so that they don't look like a small office building or a small corporate building. As soon as you see it, you realize that these are large spaces behind this uneven rhythm. And that's how it will look on Nicollet Mall. The, the wing will cantilever some 90 feet over the street. And, uh, and there you can see how the walls will work out. It's almost completely clear on the north facade, about 40% opaque on the east and the west, and about 90% opaque on the south facade. So it's very, at all, and the roofs are all grass roofs, so that it is as ecologically sensitive as we could make it. And that's the interior of Library Hall between the two spaces. Ah, this is another interesting project we have had for quite a while, keeps on changing. This is in the city of Aphrodisias in Turkey, which is really not truly a city, it's a Greek and Roman ruins, uh, which were discovered only about 40, 50 years ago. But it seems to have been a major settlement during Greek and Roman times. Very little of the Greek is left. The Romans just bulldozed with everything. And among these, the archaeologists discovered this unique element. This is their drawing, not ours which they call a Sebastian, which are these two walls. Each one of these layers is higher than a normal floor, and these are covered with sculptures. Nobody knows for sure what the function is. What they believe is that and all of these walls are dedicated to praise the emperor and Roman success. What they believe is one very wealthy family built one of the walls and the other very wealthy family was obliged to build the other wall, so as not to be outdone. And that's the remnants today. And these are dozens and dozens of pieces like this. This is larger than full size. A person standing on that foot would be about that high. And quite extraordinary. And we, had, we have first designed a museum here that would accommodate all of these functions. And then there was earthquake, financial collapse, so the whole thing stopped, it's coming back again, 
but in the meantime, they discovered ruins in this area. So we had to move the museum further away, and also some ideas about how to exhibit this wall have changed. Before, we were going to recreate the walls. Now they are totally against it. So we have a very, very simple structure. With This is laminated wood, which is we were almost directed to use them because they fabricate them very near this area. Laminated wood beams with a translucent roof and in both wings. One a tall wing for the Sebastian and the lower wings in small rooms for the rest of the facilities. And we hope this will really get going this time and be built. In Japan, in Osaka, we were asked to design the National Museum of Contemporary Art. And after we were selected, we were told that the museum had to be all underground because they have acquired, they made a deal with the city of Osaka. The city had built this museum some years ago. It's a museum of science and industry so that the Ministry of Culture and the Ministry of Construction of the nation got the rights to build a museum in this area here, in the colored area, but only underground. And then after we started designing that, they told us, but I, we know that this is underground, but we need a very strong image that you can see from far away. <laughs> so, so it got interesting, and that's what it came up of it. Three levels below gray with skylights that will bring natural life to the bottom. What also made it interesting, this is in a flat plain so that this whole thing will be below flood water when there is a large flood. We, you enter in this lobby in the upper level, go down staircases, escalators, and elevator down to this check-in ticket floor, and from there you keep on going down. And that's how it will look as you approach it. This is in the middle of the island in the center of Osaka, which is most government buildings are, and now there is a new cultural center there. That's why they wanted a strong image to be the announcement of the whole cultural center. And that's how the structure would look. That's the lobby, revolving doors. And now it is almost finished. It's all stainless steel structure coated in titanium. But the stainless steel is stronger than the titanium, but the titanium is more resistant to pollution. So it's a stainless steel structure coated with titanium. You can see the lobby glass structure and the skylight bringing light below. Actually, this week they're having the first opening, although this first celebration, inauguration by the Ministry of Construction. Many people from my office have gone there, at least tomorrow, which is actually today for the, the and, uh, but it will not open to the public until November. This, these photographs are a few months old, and you can just see how the, the two elements intercept the structure of the lobby and the structure of the upper element. I'm very, very excited about how this is taking form. I'm anxious to see it functioning. That's a photograph of the actual thing. 
And as, as you move, the combination of lines, of course, is continuously changing. So what, as you can see, this is the last image I have. We have tried to take advantage of opportunities that each project presents, but also to respond as sympathetically as we could to each project. Interesting, the Japanese have a very good custom. It's usually they ask us, what does it mean when we presented the form? So I was not prepared, but I was able to tell them, well, these are bamboos bending in the wind. <laughs> that explained it, and instantly they approved the design. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's a very, very good idea. What they want to know is what the story behind it. It doesn't need to be realistic. It may be only a poetic connection, but they realize that it needs to mean more than just simply looking good. So that they always request these associations, which I, at the beginning, I thought this was very strange, but now I have come to appreciate them, and I think it's extremely wise. This, this view of bamboos allow them to connect these forms with the root of Japanese culture in many ways, bamboo construction. So that this is a minor example, but in every aspect we like this, and obviously this is being designed only in Japan we could have built this as perfectly as this was built. You know, this looked like single sheets of tubes, but they were made of short segments that needed to fit perfectly. Now you cannot tell where they fit. They, they just, the ensemble was so absolutely perfect. The, the, and the maintenance, and the, the, it was the idea of coating this in titanium was their idea, which was just cost a great deal more. But then, because they started worrying that in Japan, stainless steel does corrode, and I think they are right. But with the titanium, it does not. Titanium seems to repel the water as it falls on it, particularly when it's being applied liquid, as it was in this case. This is not sheets of titanium. This is liquid titanium applied, sprayed on the, on the forms of the building. And actually, I think I have another image, because, yes, already they, we have been testing lighting on the, on the form, and they got the image they wanted. You will see this quite a distance away in, in Osaka, and it will announce the new cultural center. There will be two theaters being built here and a museum, besides these two, this, uh, this, uh, sorry, uh, an archaeological museum, besides the two museums that we have built already here. The, as I said, I just wanted to share with you some thoughts and, and designs, uh, no, no great wisdom to share, but I, I still am really fascinated by the challenge that each problem is. And for me, because I am not concerned to see how do I make this building look like a Caesar Pelly building, but I am mostly concerned to make the most suitable building for each place, each project is really anew. We don't have sets of details that we reuse or sets of forms that we reuse. Every project is new, which means for me 
is also much more challenging, more vivifying. I find this. Each project keeps on being just as fascinating as the first design I ever did. Thank you very much. Questions for Mr. Cesar Pelli? What, what, what inspiration do you draw from, from the architecture of ancient cultures, like Egypt or Rome or, or Greece? Uh, no, 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 no direct inspiration. The, what those things are mostly examples of how to do things well. Not necessarily that I will imitate forms, but they were unquestionably architects that understood their time, understood their technology, and they had incredibly successful responses. The buildings that remain, those that I admire. They, but our times are different, our technology is different, and therefore our responses need to be different. So that they, I, I would not say that I'm directly only inspired in the sense, he says, if they could do it that well, I should be able to do it too. So as, as emulation, absolutely. As imitation, no. There is a question over there. Uh, you've designed a lot of, lot of tall buildings. Can I use the microphone, please? Certainly. You've designed a lot of tall buildings and a lot of theaters. And I'm wondering, do you find more satisfaction from doing one or the other? Do you find that a theater project or a, a skyscraper project offers more challenges? They, it's very difficult to say which project or which aspect of the project is more satisfying. The satisfaction comes for me in understanding all of the particulars of the project, all of the nitty-gritty of it, the financial, political, aesthetic sequences of events, and feeling that you have responded well. And if I feel that I have done that, then I feel I have done my job as an architect and therefore I am satisfied. It is not one aspect of the, of the building. Uh, that actually is what makes architecture so incredibly rewarding, is that it has so many aspects. And uh, each one of us is different. We have all different weaknesses and strengths, so that this allows us to, to exercise the things, to be able to do the things that we do well besides doing as well as we can the things that we don't do so well. Yes, uh, Mr. Pelli, two questions. One, what have you designed in Buenos Aires, uh, my native city? And two, you made a comment on the Jazz Center in Moscow, Idaho, and that the design of the building brought to you some feeling of jazz and some, but I, I missed the point. Would you expand on that comment you made? Well, the first, the, the first question is easy. That's a, yes, we, we have 
designed three buildings in Buenos Aires. One built, finished about oh, eight, ten years ago, Edificio Republica on, on Avenida Madero, Bouchard, and Paraguay. Sorry, and Tucumán, very narrow triangular lot. And then we designed a building for Bank of Boston, uh, headquarters for the Bank of Boston in an area called Catalinas Norte. And we have under construction a building for the petroleum company, Repsol YPF, uh, that stopped when the devaluation came, but actually they continued up until about eight months ago until they finished all the underground, three levels underground, and they stopped while they negotiate with the government taxes on petroleum. The, and uh, in the interior, we did actually two campuses, one in Tucumán uh, for, the, for the National Catholic University St. Thomas of Aquinas, and we did the master plan for it, and it's being implemented. And we did also the master plan and designed one of the buildings for a university in Cordoba. I was there last week where it was inaugurated, the Universidad Empresarial Siglo XXI, 21st century uh, empresarial management university, and, uh, which is quite wonderful. So that we have had some work in Argentina. I imagine now with the devaluation, we're not going to be able to do any more work because we're not going to be able to afford to work in pesos and, or they are not going to be able to afford to hire us in dollars. So we, we may not be able to work there anymore. Although we are doing a project in the city of Rosario, a communal center for the municipality that we have started, was stopped. Now they want to restart it. We are going to lose money there, but I want to finish it. So, so, sorry? The, your comment on the JAS building that you built in, in Moscow, Idaho. You made a comment about the, the flow of the design. The building in Moscow, Idaho doesn't have much glass. It's mostly uh, has some, some glass in some areas. It's a fairly simple building. It's a very modest budget. It's, yeah, it's concrete walls. Some are brick walls. The, the concrete is in the main hall because the, our acousticians want the mass of concrete, so we just we leave it exposed, and we have a metal roof. The, what you saw as glass is just an attached lobby to this element the, that also face, faces north and, and is well under cover, the, also because Moscow, Idaho, is quite far north, yeah, so that it is not as bad as doing it in a, in a more southern the latitude. The, we, like all architects today, we are collectively fascinated by the possibilities of glass, but also because the glass industry has done just wonderful things, has been one of the most aggressively progressive construction materials, and, and there are new glasses almost weekly that we, we receive um, with some incredible properties. Uh, today you can do an all glass wall that will be, will offer you, that will look almost completely transparent and will offer you more shading than if you covered it with a 
with exterior louvers or films, so that it, the glass is becoming, has become again a fresh, interesting uh, material, very easy to use. The, the, the tower in Bilbao will be all glass, but it will be a double wall with a very large space in between the, the two walls that will make it very efficient and will be able to have sunshades in the intermediate wall. Professor Pelley, um, to be successful as you have been, it means that you have to master many different skills, one of them handling clients and being successful in presenting to clients, also interpreting very well what the public is looking for in, in, in your design. Um, which one is more difficult? Handling your customers. Sorry, say, say, say it again, Roberto. Which which one is more difficult to to sell to your clients, to convince your clients, to have a design that responds to the public? Which one is more difficult? But see, we 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 don't see design like that. We work very closely with our clients, so that they become part of the design. For me, it's very important that they feel when the building is done that it is their building, so that that way they will care for it. The, you know, work, works of art can have multiple creators, like a movie. If you look at the list of credits at the end of a movie, you will see how many people have participated in making that work of art. Even a tiny art movie will have endless lists of participants, many of them with creative roles, so that I like to involve my clients as much as possible, as far as they will go, in the creative aspects of design. Some will be very intimately involved, others will decline or just will let us make the decision. But in every case, we believe that it's very important that they feel ownership of the design. That way, they will care for the building afterwards. It will be also their baby, not just mine. And uh, clear glass in your design. Do you ever take into consideration the flight Sorry? path of the migratory birds? Uh, I, I, I still cannot hear you. Yeah. Do you when you design tall buildings, especially with clear glass, do you consider uh, the flight path of the migratory birds or resident birds? Uh, I'm not sure I got it completely, but the t tall buildings are for me a very special area of design for, for two or three reasons. One, historical, is that the creators of the modern movement somehow ignore the problem of a very tall vertical building so that there are no theories in modern architecture to deal with the very tall buildings. The most successful tall buildings, like the Sigrans building, which is an extraordinarily beautiful building, it's really, those are Miss Van der Rohe's theories of a short building, he just stretched it up. But 
we have seen, without theories, very successful tall buildings built by less gifted architects, like the Empire State or the Chrysler Building, or many other great skyscrapers that were able to capture other qualities that Ms. Van der Rohe wasn't interested in, symbolic qualities, emotional qualities. And what is interesting is in Manhattan, occasionally, they have polls where they ask people at large to vote for the building they like the most. And almost invariably, first or second in the list will be the Chrysler building. Sigrun's building rarely figures anywhere. For the people at large, they are able to, and the Chrysler building is reaching everyone, touching them in a way that Sigrun's does not. And it's not because Van Allen was a better architect. No, he was not even in the same class as Ms. Van der Rohe but he was able to capture an element that Miss ignores. And that interests me because it's too important an element to ignore or to leave it only in the hand of second or third rate architects. I think it's something we need to understand, incorporate, and make it part of, a, of an intelligent architecture. And those are some of the qualities I have been pursuing. I don't know if that was your question, but... Ah, ah, ah. Can, you, can you bring the microphone so that we... ...tend to fly and, and crash onto buildings. The issue is, I don't know if you all heard, it's the issue of birds crashing on buildings. Yes, they, we were particularly concerned with the building we did in Jersey City because the chairman of the company, whose name of the company I, I'm not allowed to reveal, is very concerned with birds. And, uh, so that we, we had a study made to see what kinds of things one needs to do to keep birds from hitting the glass. And one of the things that helps is to have a frit pattern on the glass. And we have the whole glass with a frit pattern. And most importantly is how the building is lit at night. It seems to be that in tall buildings, lit windows seem to appear to the birds as if they were openings in a, in a in, in a forest canopy and they fly into them so that we have been also working with our lighting consultants and bird consultants. I don't try to think of what they call themselves. <laughs> they, they, so that they, we will, I do not know if we're going to be able to avoid it, but at least make it less so. Once I lived in a one-story house in northern Argentina, in the middle of the woods, and we used to have about two birds a day run onto the window. And this was just a one-story house, had just one big window, and it, was, and it was terrible. I would run out, and sometimes we could revive the birds, 
and uh, sometimes the bird was dead, and uh, we did not know what to do with it. So, so it's not just a question of the height. It's, it is uh, just a very peculiar phenomenon. Yes, I understand there are thousands of birds that die every year just hitting the Empire State Building. And, and they are in, the, in that area, they are in an area of migration. And so that, uh, yes, it was an issue that we took very seriously. I do not, I'll, I'll, I will know soon how successful we have been. One last question over there. Could you describe uh, your working relationship with uh, the acousticians when you build a concert hall? Uh, uh, how does uh, the, um, the uh, sound aesthetic get integrated into your plan? Does it come into play from the initial stages, or is there a tension between so, yourself? Help me, Sergio. The interplay between the, the acoustic design and the architecture of the sound. The, yeah, this is actually... Yes, I should have mentioned this earlier. It's a very interesting issue. Uh, it requires more than an intimate collaboration. Normally, in the design of a concert hall, the acoustician makes the first move. They will figure out, first of all, today, the basic decision is if the house has what has been referred to as a shoebox shape, which is usually the shape is a volume similar to two cubes put on end. Those are ideal proportions for acoustics. Or the more recent form, which is, which is called the Vineyard Scheme, which is the first one was the, the Berlin Symphony Hall by, designed by Sharon, and this is the model, of course, that the Frank Gehry actually was told to use in Disney Hall. The, we have worked with four different acousticians of us, the very best in the, in the world today. And uh, in, in America, all of the acousticians feel that the shoebox shape still will make for better acoustics than the vineyard, and, and you are much closer to the performers in this form than with the vineyard scheme, which is basically a one-story spread-out system. The, that's the basic first decision that normally you make it with the acoustician and with your clients. In the case of Disney Hall, that came from the clients through pressures from the, from the symphony. The, also, they will determine the proportions with length, heights, and basic arrangement of elements. At that point, you start working together, and also with theater planners that will have something to say about sight lines and how people will move into this. And it's a very intimate interplay. And different acousticians have different takes and different uh, flexibilities. Some acousticians, like Larry Kierkegaard, which is a great acoustician, will always accept acoustically transparent uh, screens that allows us to create one is the form, which is the visual form, which is different than the acoustical form of the hall. Others, such as Russell Johnson, with whom we are doing the concert halls both in Miami and in Costa Mesa, doesn't believe in acoustically transparent elements, so everything is solid, but he has reverberation chambers, and 
huge, huge canopies. Each one weighs like 40 tons that go up and down and they change the volume of the hull. And uh, when we work with Jaffe Holden, with whom we did the, both the Dayton project and the Duluth project, they accepted with great limitations acoustically transparent material, but it had to be much, much more open than what Kierkegaard. So with each one, you, you need to adapt to their intuitions because there is some science in acoustics, but so far it's still greatly an intuitive art that depends a lot on their ears and their experience. And uh, you know, with Kierkegaard, we did the Symphony Hall in Kuala Lumpur, which is in the base of the Petronas Towers. That was finished about five years ago. He still goes back two, three times a year there to listen to the music, see how it is performing, and learning for the next hall, and seeing if anything needs to be done to make it better. This, this is true of all of the good acousticians. They will keep, they will remain on the project long, long after it's finished. Well, let us thank Cesar Feli once more. <laughs>